Hi, welcome to Found. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington. This is the show where we tell you the stories behind the startups, and I'm here with my co-host and the tele to my health. Jordan Crook. Right? You're the telephone, and I'm health delivered over the telephone. they mean? By that, yeah, I was the. I, for some reason, I went to Teletubbies, which is really upsetting. Yeah, I'm Teletubbies a Teletubby. Was, no, you're is not. Is that how you picture me as the giant? You're the sun, <laughs> the sun baby, the baby sun. Okay. Yeah. I hope our audience gets these references. I feel like they're I don't probably. I feel like I should even because that was like after us. I didn't. We didn't grow up on. Oh, we were not children. I grew up on like Barney and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean. Just try to guess our age based on these cultural references that we've introduced mm-hmm. at the beginning of this episode. Saved by the Bell, Boy Meets World. First, before we get into who our guest is today, we do want to talk about the number one event happening this year. I don't think you can say that. What do you mean? Why not? Who's going to stop me? I don't know. No <laughs> one, I guess. And what is it, Jordan? It's TechCrunch Disrupt. That's right. October 18th through 20th at the Moscone Center in San Francisco. Tickets available now. Tickets available now. And it is back in person, as Jordan mentioned, at the Moscone Center. Moscone Center West, just in case, the one that's full of light and joy and happiness, which is what we're all also going to be filled with when (laughs) we attend. For the first time ever. Well, for the first time ever again, kind of, since the, you know, the bad stuff that we want to talk about with the disease and whatnot. Wow. <laughs> Super like mysterious, actually. I mean, I know what you're talking about, but it could be really enigmatic. Like we right. specifically had diseases. No, we, all of us are fine. I'm talking about the thing that affected everyone. But anyways. Sure. It's really great to be back in person because this is a super special event for us, for everyone who comes out, too, I think. I think I can say that for people. It's going to be a fantastic show. We've got some of the biggest, brightest stars in the world. We've got Serena Williams coming, and this is amazing for her to be coming this year. We've tried to get her a lot, but she's coming now when she announced her retirement, and it seems like she's going to be focused a lot more on the investment side of things, which is super exciting. Yeah, it'll be cool to talk. I mean, I'm like biting my nails thinking about what is going to happen at the U.S. Open. It could be a really special interview if she wins and breaks the record. If she doesn't, you know, still awesome because there's so much to talk about tech-wise, which will be the focus either way. But yeah, I'm just super duper excited, been a longtime fan. And there are a bunch of cool people coming to Disrupt. And this year we're expanding the battlefield. So normally... You know, you have the battlefield with 20 companies that launch on our stage. And then you have Startup Alley, which are companies that go through an application process, but also pay to be a part of the expo hall. This year, we're curating the whole thing. So every startup that you're going to see at Disrupt has been hand-selected and curated by the TechCrunch team. Shout out to Nisha Tambe. And we're really excited about it. 200 companies that are cream of the crop. You've never heard of them before, and they're going to blow your mind kind of thing. All exhibiting on the show floor, so you can walk right up to them, talk to them, pick their brain, hear their founder story if you want, although they might not have time for all that, but you can try. (laughs) You're going to be like, move along. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But speaking of founder stories, we should get to Mm -hmm. ours for today, because today we're talking to Kelsey Millard from Sitka, which is a virtual specialty consultation company. And what that basically means is that when your primary care physician or PCP, as I learned this week that it's often called in the industry, (laughs) wants to potentially refer you to a specialist for like additional consultation, they can instead jump on Sitka 
and get connected with somebody for a video consult, like a, an actual specialist in that area. And they might say like, oh, don't worry, this person doesn't need a referral to me based on this. Just tell them to do X, Y, Z. And yeah, it adds a whole new layer of efficiency. So let's go ahead and hear from Kelsey, who can explain it much better than me. Hi, Kelsey. How's it going? Hey, Daryl. Doing well. How are you? Great. Great. So welcome to the show. Great to have you here. What we typically do is have our guests introduce what they built, so their company a little bit, and give our listeners at home an idea of, you know, what it is they wanted to bring to this world. So do you want to tell us a little bit about Sitka? Sure. So Sitka is a specialty physician network that partners with primary care providers so that when you go to see your primary care provider, your PCP can request a consult from a specialist in our network and avoid a referral altogether. So as you've probably experienced, as most of us have, if you have to go see a specialist, it can be a long wait and you might actually go see the wrong specialist. And so it just kind of starts this unfortunate series of events oftentimes in patients' lives. So if we can actually just upskill the primary care provider and avoid the referral altogether, everyone wins. And especially with in the value-based care space, people are incentivized, providers are incentivized to take better care of their patients and not just provide more care. And so we'd certainly align with those value-based care providers. Right. So a few things to, this is a Another thing where I'm Canadian, so I always am like trying to clarify what's going on, but like the value-based care, is it on outcomes as opposed to kind of like instances of care or like appointments or whatever? Like that's how the insurer or the payer compensates? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So oftentimes, you know, people will refer to it or at least aspects of it to Obamacare because that was, you know, what Obama set out to really transform at Medicare and Medicaid. And so luckily I had the good fortune of working at Medicare and Medicaid and really believe in value-based care as opposed to just amounts of care Mm. to ensure that the patient's actually getting better and getting the care that they want and need as opposed to just what the physician gets paid for. Right. Okay, cool. And then the other thing I wanted to ask was just about, and maybe this is very complicated, so forgive (laughs) me if it spins us off on a tangent, but like when you're doing specialists, does it matter if they're in network for your insurer or your payer? Yeah, so really good question. And it doesn't. Be- <laughs> Sounds like it does. <laughs> well, <laughs> in the in old world, it definitely does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So pre-Sitka. Of course, yeah. So pre-Sitka world, a thousand percent, it matters if that specialist is in your network. The idea is that you don't even have to see the specialist as a patient. And so that your primary care provider can do what's called a peer-to-peer consult. And uh-huh. so you, it doesn't even matter, you know, how robust your network is or where your network is, because hopefully you don't have to see them or you only need to see them in like very informed instances. So one of the things that I'm really proud of that we've figured out at Sitka is that when a PCP uses a consult through our specialty physician network, 85% of the time, that specialist is able to upskill the primary care provider to avoid the referral altogether. Right. Okay. Which just like actually starts to unfold. You know, a lot of people talk about 30% waste in healthcare in the United States. I think that's a very conservative number because if you can just elegantly transfer knowledge at certain points of care, there's arguably, you know, double, triple that mm-hmm. waste on the 30%. And then I guess if they encounter a similar thing, they might not need that consult again because they have the prior upskilling. Right, exactly. And those primary care providers can reference 
all of the consults that they've historically done. So they are therefore like kind of creating their own library uh, that they can reference on the fly. Okay. So this part, there are several parts that confuse me and I want Mm -hmm. to better understand. Mm -hmm. So why do I, as a primary care physician, want to avoid the referral? What is the incentive, right? Because like, yeah, maybe I could like gain more knowledge or I could spend more time with this patient, but like, am I making more money off of that? Am I like, you, do you know what I'm saying? Totally. Like what, it just right. sounds like more work. Like now I have to go talk to someone who knows, like you go talk to them. It's <laughs> yeah. your problem. You know what I mean? Maybe I'm like taking the stone cold approach to healthcare, not value-based, but like, wh- that's what right. is the incentive? I don't think I'm getting it. Yeah. So Jordan, that's, accurate of today's fee-for-service environment that that physician thinks of it you know not all physicians think of it but as humans yeah they're not terrible they're not terrible people they're busy but the system that we've created is terrible and so we incentivize them in very terrible ways through money and money can create good incentives you know bad incentives and just even like totally unnecessary outcomes and so in this instance jordan the primary care providers that we work with are financially at risk for those patients they take care of. Mm. So they're economically incentivized to reduce the total cost of care for you as their patient compared to last year. And if they do and have the same quality outcomes, then they actually win financially. They make more money. Mm -hmm. So you hit the crux of the issue though. We're a four and a half year old company and we are changing human behavior on the front lines of care every single day. We're asking a provider to do something that takes a few more minutes, that's a little harder for them to do than the historic practices that they've employed in their fee-for-service environment. And I think what's super telling is that (laughs) I was with some primary care providers who have been partnered with us for several years now. And I was like, hey, what's, as you guys know, when you build companies, you have to like stay super close to the user of the product, right? And like just try Mm -hmm. to absorb mental space that they sit in when they interact with your product and everything. And so I was like, hey, what's the worst thing about Sitka? When you have to use Sitka, when you request a consult, what's the worst thing that happens? And one of the primary care providers very innocently said, I don't like it because I have to stop and think. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I'm okay with that as a patient. <laughs> like, I hope you're stopping and thinking every time you're encountering your patients. <laughs> but I think that actually speaks to the system that that you really well articulated, Jordan, which is like, we pay practitioners to do certain things. And sometimes those certain things are not in the patient's best interest, in taxpayer's best interest, for instance, from care. And this is why value-based care is you know, a very slow moving, like turning of the ship here, but it's definitely transformed the care for Medicare and even parts of commercial and Medicaid over the past decade. But we're early in the journey. Right. Okay. So then that makes a little bit more sense. But then the other part that I'm confused about is like the idea of upskilling. Like, I don't want my PCP to think that they're an oncologist just because they've had a few consultations. Like, I want you to send me to the person who went to like four more different years of school to figure that out. So like, what are the boundaries of that and how are PCPs like trained to think of that, right? Mm -hmm. Because you don't want them, not that they're like, again, not bad people thinking that they're like high and mighty and up on their horse or whatever, but just, you know, what's the balance there? Because they're not credentialed to do certain things. Totally. 
So really good question. So we think about it in a couple of different ways. One is like, what can the tech do to enable the the upskilling and not just to like pretend to be an oncologist, but also know when they need a referral. So some referrals are absolutely necessary and we call those informed referrals. But the way that a consult works when a primary care provider has, let's say you, Jordan, in their office and they're like, Jordan, I don't really know what to do with this rash or, you know, we got some abnormal labs back. Why did it have to be a rash? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Because you have a huge one. This is an audio podcast. (laughs) (laughs) They can't see my rash here. Damn it. (laughs) Or, Or some abnormal labs, right? Which is very common. And so the primary care provider can actually record the video request. It can include the patient. It includes the screen share of the EMR as well. So that the PCP is not like downloading a bunch of information and then uploading it again. And they can also type request a consult in. And so we've tried to really focus on this like conversation aspect of it, even though it's all asynchronous. And then the specialist responds to the primary care provider via video and text. And that's really important because the amount of empathy that actually can be built and occurred when you actually see another human taking care of like just trying to do the right thing, right? I think a lot of people kind of like make out doctors and particularly like specialists to be like money hungry people. And they love this work because they actually get to use their brain in a really like tangible way to another colleague in a primary care setting. And so this video and text ongoing exchange really does allow for either the escalation of information to be transmitted and the identification of when this patient needs to go out. So our consults will go on sometimes for, you know, a week or two because, you know, Jordan, maybe your abnormal lab results, maybe we do another reading and the next time they come back, they're completely normal. And so as a PCP, I'm like, well, how concerning is this? Like one says abnormal, one says normal. Do I need to get a third or is there no other like signs and symptoms here that we need to be concerned about? So it really is this collaboration. It's not just this like one time cold interaction, but the video aspect of the interaction, I think it's really powerful. It's recorded. And also humans are on our best when we're recorded too. And so <laughs> there's some psychological shifts that happen. I think when you, someone hits record and they see, you know, the empathetic voice of a specialist just trying to help the PCP or the PCP, like really scared and wanting help from a specialist as to how to best treat their patient. Yeah. I think the recording thing is a good point yeah. to make. Cause I do, I enunciate on the show and I don't in real life as Jordan <laughs> kind of tests. Like, yeah. When I'm just speaking casually, I'm like, oh, it's all a low registered, <laughs> indistinct mumble. It's very timbrous. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know. You have to, it takes years <laughs> to acquire the ear. Um, but I was just saying, I think Daryl and I have like succumbed to over recording exposure and are not on our best necessarily. <laughs> we just do it too frequently. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. So, like, what access does the customer? the end patient basically have to the product. It sounds like maybe they can see that conversation going on back and forth. And like, is there a way for them to choose doctors who use this? Is there like some benefit in that? Or do they have like a vote with your wallet moment? Or is this really about like you and PCPs and specialists just like getting it on? You know, I mean, like healthcare is so hard Mm. (laughs) to innovate within and to actually influence the end consumer. 
Because most of the deals and relationships that develop in healthcare are business to business, right? And then like the patient is mm-hmm. the sometimes unfortunate or fortunate beneficiary of whatever business deals have occurred. And in our setting, patient inclusion is really important to us at Sitka. And so the primary care provider can actually say like, hey, Jordan, I want you to hear what the hematologist said about your abnormal labs. Here's the video that they sent back Mm. to me. So there is a way to include that. And we found that, you know, sharing the video from the specialists then increases the patient's trust with their PCP and can also actually like drive better adherence to the care plan, right? If you're like, the PCP says like, hey, you need to take this medication for the next 12 days. Like, I mean, I'm a terrible patient too. I'll be like, oh, take it for 10 days. I feel better, fine. (laughs) But like maybe that video from the hematologist that's like, hey, your blood clotting disorder is actually really serious. You need to take this medicine through the duration of the prescription. Yeah. I'll probably listen with a little bit more like seriousness in regards to adhering to, to that care plan. You know, trust is transient. Is, yeah. the, the trust about the PCP, it's so much better if they're revealing like, oh, like this is how I do my job. Like, I right. feel like that goes a long way because a lot of times we just see them as like, you know, like. Someone you spend 19 minutes a year with, basically. Yeah. And and, and just they like, just kind of rapid fire things at you. And you're like, I don't know where you got this or what or what your background is or how you're finding out this information. And like, and I feel like. Again, maybe this isn't all physicians, but I think there are some like ones that are maybe on the batter side of the spectrum who are kind of like, (laughs) I like to appear graceful, you know, (laughs) omnipotent or whatever. Right. But like, yes, but that doesn't engender trust. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's the idea of like, we want patients to kind of like see behind the curtain. Right. We don't really know what we're great for the the wizard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like once the doctor leaves the room, you're like, man, are they like bad mouthing me? Are they even, do they even care about me? Like, you know, you're making up this own talk track based on, and Jordan, that was generous for a 19 minute interaction, like on an annual basis, I know only, but like, you know, five minute interaction, right. you're sitting on like a crunchy piece of white paper that sounds terrible. And like, I still get nervous when I go to the doctor and I hang out with these people and I'm like, oh God. <laughs> Yeah, it's such a terrible, I mean, there's so many, it's interesting too, because I'm really excited about, I know this is like a weird thing to say, but I am excited about the future of healthcare because Mm -hmm. I think that like, there's two sides to it. There are companies like Sitka and who did we talk to that's doing the recording? Abridged. Yep, abridged. And then there are the bigger companies like City Block and Mm -hmm. stuff like that, that are really thinking about like, just some balancing of the power dynamics between patient and doctor, and also just transparency. Like if we could just understand, we didn't go to school as long as you, but we're not stupid. And like, let's find some common ground where we can understand what we're doing as a team. I think that's huge. And then I also think that there's this other side of it on the patient end where you have a group of young people that are getting older and saying like, well, I'm in charge of my banking, you know, mm-hmm. with fintech. And I they, they really want to be like involved kind of, right? Mm-hmm. Like not just let things in their life happen to them. And I feel like healthcare, my whole adult life has been things happening to me. Yeah. It feels like, you yeah, know, right. like something happens and you just, it's a, an experience you have to go through and you just kind of like get through it. And I still don't feel any wiser coming yeah. out of any doctor appointment, right? Like, I'm like, I don't know, you know, what does this mean? So it's interesting. I'm excited about the ecosystem because I think that, these two sides are moving together in a way that could make a difference. Yeah, Jordan, I also think about access points to healthcare. And I think historically they've looked very 
brick and mortar, right? Like you have to wait eight weeks and like good luck and trying to get through like the receptionist to convince them that you really do need to see the doctor. Oh my and God. Mm-hmm. All these like reception things now yes. where you have to call and they're not even in the doctor. They're like somewhere a million miles away. Yes. And they're like, I'm looking at the schedule, but there's no one here for you to talk yeah. to. Like, I don't know you. You don't wow. know me. Oh, it's terrible. It's actually just to kind of pull on that a little bit. We live here in the Bay Area, but during the pandemic, we lived up in Truckee area near Lake Tahoe. And we had a kid during the pandemic. And I consciously chose to deliver at the Tahoe Forest Hospital there because it's a smaller hospital. I luckily had a healthy pregnancy and like didn't need, you know, highly acute care or anything. But I like knew my doctors. There was five of them that could potentially deliver me. I met all of them through the course of my prenatal care. They answer their phone. There's an on-call physician like all the time. And, you know, like in the Bay Area, we have all these amazing academic medical centers, but like, good luck getting a human on the phone. I'm like, Mm. I just want to talk to the pediatrician. So I've kind of, in my personal life, like reverted to smaller community practices because it's actually where I feel I can be seen as like a human and not just this like person trying to access this like massive piece of brick and mortar construction that looks beautiful, but feels a little soulless. (laughs) Right. But that's also like... It's a, you mean, you raised another interesting challenge with accessibility is like, that's a very specific community where people probably have the means that that makes sense for there to be those kinds of practices and that level of attention or whatever, right? Whereas a lot of the states is covered by places where like those practices don't exist. And then how do those people get that level of care? But it seems like SICA can help them get that kind of level of care, right? Totally. Yeah. It's like, how do you just increase the trust? And transparency with your primary care providers, as opposed to schlepping around the system unnecessarily. So we can help patients avoid copays, right? We get answers within hours as opposed to weeks. And you can actually avoid a lot of unnecessary care. Because if you think what happens of like, you get referred for your, you know, back pain or something. Well, eventually, like you can't take it anymore. And your appointment is still four weeks away. Then what's your alternative path? The ER. And like, what's that path? Opioids. Like, you know, so it it sends you down this like whole other unfortunate care journey that is totally costly to your life, let alone our system. And so that's what we're super passionate about. But in the remote management means there's no geographical boundary, right? Like if if it's like, oh, maybe I don't have this type of practitioner. Yeah. But if you don't need that. Once you need something. Yeah. yeah, Once you need like equipment or an x-ray or whatever, then you kind of got to go find it, you'd assume. But But it's it's like to your earlier point, it can just eliminate 30% up to 30% of that is potentially something you can eliminate before it even gets to that stage. Totally. totally. We find that if it's actually if a PCP uses Sitka, we can eliminate a referral altogether 85% of the time. Mm, Wow. Okay. Yeah. And that's like, that's staggering. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. How do the specialists feel about that? I know. Are they like, wait, that's my business. <laughs> Hold on there. Or are they like, we don't have any time, so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so something happened during the pandemic that actually really changed the specialist perspective on this, which is all of the elective procedures were canceled, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys remember that. And so all of a sudden specialists are like, oh my gosh, I have these huge practice operations with like an MRI in the back of my office, like 20 staff people, right? And like, how am I supposed to sustain this if... I'm not bringing the cash in the door. Mm. And so the specialists actually love the work that they do with us at Sitka because there's, you know, just like any cohort of 
professional. You're going to have the professionals that are like, you know, kind of like on the leading indicator of where the industry is going. And then you're going to have like lagging cohorts of people. And the specialists on our platform that practice with us, they're like, look, we know that the game is changing and we want to be ahead of it. And we want to practice in a way that is like, quote, telemedicine. That's what a lot of people call it still. I'm like, I guess. Like it's asynchronous video. Use the telephone. Yeah. (laughs) Call up the doctor. Catch me here. (laughs) Um, So there's like our specialists on our platform love it. I think specialists who are nervous are those that are still practicing in a fee-for-service environment that are banking on seeing a lot of elective procedures and perhaps even unnecessary care. One of our partners actually did an analysis that showed Every time a patient is referred to a specialist, then that results. So if that's like the initial anchor visit, if you will, after that anchor visit, there's seven visits after that that aren't clinically indicated. So that Mm. specialist in a fee-for-service environment is economically incentivized. As you keep coming back. Yeah. To say, hey, Jordan, you know what? We're going to need to check on this. We're going to need to check your labs every quarter. We're going to need to do that echo every quarter even though like there's maybe nothing to clinically indicate that that's the correct path. So that's the type of waste that we're talking about. And that's an analysis that our partner did. We didn't, we didn't do that one. Yeah. We were... But anecdotally, <laughs> I, I mean, I have personal experience with this where I had a, an orthodontist when I was, this is dentistry, but I yeah. mean, similar, especially in Canada because dentistry is not covered through yeah. public funds. But um, yeah, we had a dentist and later <laughs> we found out the orthodontist that everybody was referred to. One of them was definitely doing like, unnecessary procedures, unnecessary braces, unnecessary orthodontic surgery. He was later charged and disbarred like from the College of Orthodontics or whatever for that. Right. So it's not it's like on record. I've read a lot about how dentists pull some shit. Mm -hmm. Like dentists, there was some study I read that was like you could go with the same mouth of teeth to 10 different dentists and get like eight different treatment plans. But one of the things I want to ask is that like, maybe this is a simplification, but I think of them as people that need equipment. And like, I know that that equipment can be staggeringly expensive and they take out loans. And the person who gives them the loan basically says like, you'd have to do 20 of these every month in order to pay back the loan, right? right? And like, that equipment isn't unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Like people do need echocardiograms Mm -hmm. and they do Mm -hmm. need colonoscopies and they do need whatever else stuff they do, MRIs, whatever. So like, how does that piece weigh into the equation? Maybe I'm stupid for thinking specialists are like the dudes with the fancy machines, but like they, we still need them, right? And to do the like small trusting practice that you're talking about, like you'd rather, I would rather go to one who had like got their own machine than go into a big academic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The dudes and dudettes need machines at times. <laughs> I think the question, the questions about the kind of like material use of those is where you start to create these unnecessary economic incentives. So there's no like governing body that says like, hey, you know what? This market is already saturated with MRIs. We don't need another MRI in this market. And so that's the problem is that it's not equally dispersed or even equally accessible. And so you point out a, a really flawed part of the system today, which is exactly what's kind of like feeding a lot of these unnecessary costs in our system and why it's such a massive portion of GDP, but there's no solution 
to that until you start to unwind the current economic kind of construct of how they get paid and how they're incentivized. And even like restructuring, you know, like the loan system for that to say, okay, in this area, is this like a needs-based MRI or is this a profit-driven MRI, Mm -hmm. right? I think like we don't talk about it in terms of those things. And so if you drive around, you know, the Bay, you can hit UCSF, you can hit Sutter, you can hit like, you know, Kaiser, you can hit all of these with equal amounts of equipment. And if you start to look at the utilization of that equipment, I bet it's underutilized. I would argue that we probably don't need another outpatient MRI or echo machine in like in that area. There's no equality of distribution of that. And I think that's, that's a really important point, Jordan, which is what at some level, we're trying to like just kind of streamline, but it's going to take broader systematic shifts beyond our control to help really think about how you create different access points and economic, just like distribution of that in an economic right. sense. So we do, and we have asked past guests who like work in this area, like, is that something you think about? Is there stuff you do on that side when it comes to shifting the macro environment about, you know, how people access and pay for healthcare? Yeah. So one, we study a lot as to what happens with our consults, right? So if 85% don't need a referral altogether, okay, then what type of recommendation were we looking at? Were we recommending labs? Were we recommending imaging? Were we recommending medication changes? And over 60% of the time, our consults result in a medication recommendation shift. So that's like the largest thing that we're shifting is, you know, as some people would refer to it as this Part D expenditures Mm -hmm. within Medicare. But I think this is like where you have to kind of take the long game and say, okay, if we can incrementally quantify what we're doing and start to move the needle there and really promote what is available when you start to deliver care in a different way, then you can start to go lobby the government and, you know, all of my former colleagues at CMS and in DC to say like, this is what's available. If you guys can start to shift and manage differently. Right. It's the long game, but yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah, at least you're building with a set of information or data that yeah. wasn't there previously that will indicate that totally. properly, right? So, yeah. 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 We're very much in like the storytelling phase for like macro shifts in yeah. the healthcare delivery system. Yeah. So we talked a lot about Sika, but we haven't talked that much about your journey to it. I mean, you, you mentioned some of your past experiences, but how did you get to the point where you're like, oh, this is the company that I want to build and I'm going to be the one to go build it? Yeah. Uh, I think living in the Bay Area is like a normalized mindset that you should build a company like (laughs) oh yeah that's just what you do if you live in the bay area and so (laughs) i had been living in the bay area for about two and a half years so definitely exposed i'd worked at several previous startup companies honor and navi health that had done really well so i was also exposed to the positive side of business building which i realize is pretty unique given you know the failure rate of an average startup company mm-hmm. but what really kind of convinced me was that one like personally i felt like i had i could quote take the risk so i was like single i was like if this doesn't work out like I'm not really going to negatively impact anyone else's life. Like it's just my, mine. <laughs> like, I just, so that was like an important factor for me. And yeah. then, you know, the, the real thing though, is how do you, how do you have impact? And that's always been like a pretty strong measure for me when I've made career decisions is like, 
do I feel the impact? Like what's my proximity to impact? And I've worked at like publicly traded companies and huge organizations. And sometimes I lost that feeling that my work mattered. And so Mm -hmm. I wanted to get back to that and starting a company, there's nothing like your work matters. Um, It has a massive, you know, indication as to whether that is going to be successful. And, And a lot of times, you know, it's like hard work and luck have to align a little bit and, you know, market adoption and things like that. But I worked in healthcare my entire career. So I felt like I had a pretty good sense of what I was getting into in regards to the challenges and like where the market was, but then really started to dig into this question of how do you create better specialty access points? And, you know, just like everyone in our, in the world, like I too struggled with access to specialists. Like I had a soccer injury and my mom was relentless and like got me into Mayo Clinic. Right. And I was like, Mm. mom, I don't need Mayo Clinic. Like, it's just, I have a blind spot in my eye. It's fine. And she's like, that's not okay. Like you had a condition (laughs) of a blind spot. And so I was also like super fortunate in that I had, you know, parental support at the time of that injury that like really advocated for me. And most people don't. And my parents, you know, are super well-versed in the healthcare system. And so we had a leg up and I think about all the challenges that I continue to have, even though I quote, have like all this insider knowledge. And it's incredibly disheartening to think about the amount of pain that people go through in our country to access just care, let alone like quality care. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really driven by this notion of how can you create better impact with like actual human care and not system care. And so that's, that's really kind of the motivation behind Sitka. And then, you know, found some co-founders that had specific areas of expertise and decided to start building. And, you know, it's a leap of faith that you take and you're like, we're going in. And for me, there's kind of like no looking back at this point. So it's been really fun. Nice. Why did you decide to call it Sitka? Is that like something that's already on the internet that I should know? I just think <laughs> no. it's a town in Alaska. No, that's right. So I founded the company with two other co-founders, neither one of which are with the company anymore for various reasons. I grew up in Kansas. And so when we were founding the company, there was actually only two of us. And I started looking at names of towns in Kansas because we didn't want it to be an acronym. So we're like, okay, there's a couple of rules. It can't be an acronym. It has to be something that like everyone can say, like phonetically spell. They can't be like, what's your company name? Like we can't have that reaction. And so mm-hmm. one of my co-founders grew up in Alaska. And so I just like started looking up Alaska town names and Sitka like kind of had a nice ring to it. Everyone knows how to spell it. There's generally a positive like affiliation with it as the town. Little did I know that it's also in the origin name of in a, that movie. Oh, what? What movie? Oh, well, it's in the proposal. The Sandra Bullock, Ryan oh, Reynolds. Yeah, movie. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but it's also a species of a deer. So like oh, one of... Our insurance guy is a hunter and uh, he informed me of that. So, you know, you learn things all all along the journey. (laughs) There's also a a, a tree that's, hmm. um, there's a Sitka Aspen tree. Yeah, nice. Animals. There we go. Plants. Yeah, nature. Yeah. (laughs) Jordan knew the the Alaska thing right away, Jordan. I didn't know that. Was it because of the movie? I knew it from the movie. Oh, okay. It's like a big deal because like she asks him to marry her. For business reasons. And he's like, okay, well, we're just going to go visit my parents. And she's like, yeah, we're going to go visit your parents. They live where again, honey? And he's like, Sitka, Alaska. And she's like, oh, <laughs> like they go from New York all the way to Alaska, which is, and they have to fly Welcome on like a little two seater or whatever. We provide yeah. synopses of Sandra Bullock <laughs> movies. Is that what? <laughs> I'm just saying, I knew about Sitka from the movie. It's a great movie. It's one of my like, it's one of my quarterlies. You know, you oh, gotta okay. watch the proposal okay. once re-watch. every like six months or so. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Wow. It's a great one. <laughs> it's got Betty White in it. 
I'll, I'm going to check it out. I don't think I've seen it. I'm going to watch it. You promise. got it. But, was it the, but the specific area, so you identified that need just through your own experience with the healthcare system, both as a patient and then as a professional? Like, how did you know, oh, yeah. there's, a, there's a big sort of like inefficiency here and we need to fix this? Yeah. So one of my co-founders is actually a specialty practitioner. And so I started spending a lot of time in clinic and figuring out how could we basically fix his clinic? He's like, I see the wrong patients at the wrong time. Mm. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, you know, these patients show up, they've waited eight weeks to see me. They sit two hours in my waiting room and then they see me and I'm like, hey, you should, you know, have physical therapy. And they're like, what? Like I was expecting a shot in my back and to walk out here feeling like a million bucks, right? And so there's also just this like massive expectation misalignment that occurs between patients and providers as well. So I started digging into it and realized that by the time the patient reaches that specialty office, it's too late to intervene, right? Mm. So we had to keep going upstream and we had to go from where referrals typically are initiated and that's primary care provider offices. So that was kind of like this iterative learning process. But we also learned that the power of asynchronous video creates a ton of efficiency that's hard to otherwise capture because everyone wants to schedule everything in healthcare. Yeah. They're like, great. Are you available tomorrow at, you know, 115? And you're like, right, like no, no, like my life doesn't time? revolve no. around yeah. you. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have my own life. Like I'm available at four o'clock. How about that? There's, there's no negotiation like that that actually occurs when people try to access healthcare. And so we figured out that the power of asynchronous communication is something that the healthcare system hasn't broadly adopted to recognize, but is socially really adopted. Like, look at TikTok. I mean, right. that's like asynchronous videos. That's what it is. Um, and, and YouTube too, right? Like, I mean, YouTube is yeah. all, especially for educational or learning or whatever. Exactly. That's where people go, like, right? Yeah, people can. And so if you put things in in the power of like the the watcher, right? In this case, or the responder, it shifts the dynamics and the availability drastically. And so we learned like a couple of these little nuggets of like, okay, asynchronous power video power to create like empathy, which healthcare has completely lost most line of sight on with EMRs that are like dropped down and the burnout rates and just all of the current cluster that exists. And so then we started to go upstream to PCPs and say, okay, how can we actually like rework this recipe to avoid referrals altogether? So as a result, we, you know, integrate into EMRs because we have to be at the point of care. We have to be top of mind for that primary care provider to do the right thing, not just the easy thing. And so that's that's where we spend a ton of time on workflow integration workflow adoption so that they are aligned, that they're going to do the right thing. They're going to get paid for the right thing and not just do the easy thing that they've historically done. Mm -hmm. And what about like your experience for actually running the company? So you founded this, I guess, two years prior to the pandemic, really, mm -hmm. right? And I'm sure that changed things. But overall, how has it been for you? And what were your kind of like major lessons or learnings as you were stepping into the leadership role and, and actually managing people and all that stuff, like managing people as the actual boss boss, right? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that make our situation a little bit unique in that we started the company fully remote. Hmm. So this was like before remote was cool yeah. <laughs> or like thought of as being smart. And I did it because I was relatively conservative on our cash spend. If we were to like hire engineers in the Bay, we wouldn't have a company because we would have burned through all the capital by the time right. it took us to like find product market fit. 
and to like iterate on it and get adoption. And so we hired remotely from people that we'd worked with before. And that was definitely a shift. And so we got people together, you know, like we did little retreats and such. I think those were like, you know, early super fun days. Like the team was really small. It felt, it felt very scrappy and like, you know, just I think how people think of startups. Mm -hmm. And then we went through the pandemic and the people's relationship with work changed drastically. I think the expectations increased and we also raised a round of financing. And so we really kind of rebuilt the team during that phase. After we closed a round of financing from Venrock, we built the team that we currently have. And it's been a total delight because we're about 30 people, but we act more like we're like a, I'd say 10 to 15 person company in regards to the amount of trust that we have and how we how we like spend time together and use Slack. And we have like Friday morning ritual, which like you can present about something or you can have, you know, your brother come teach the company about whatever they oh. do. And oh, so we try fun. to like really humanize the experience yeah. that people come to work to, of course, like earn money and feel good. But like they also want a social scene and like humans are social beings. And so we really worked hard on trying to create that aspect of what we do at Sitka just on the daily. And I'll like record little videos when I'm traveling for work and send them to the company and just like, you know, oh, constantly. video again. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I think it it is super important to just continually humanize ourselves every single day when we're in this virtual environment and we're all working hard to create points of empathy. But it's, you know, building a company is is hard. Finding the right team members is incredibly challenging. I think obviously a global pandemic, it makes it even harder. Mm -hmm. um, but the team that we have now is really, really incredible. But obviously it's taken time for us to build it. And I, I think that's primarily attributed to, you know, the further along you get in company building, the less risky it is, right? And like yeah. to the outside world, of course, like I don't even think that's true at times. I'm like the perception versus reality on risk is... I think kind of flawed. But yeah. anyway, after we closed a round of financing from Venrock, which is obviously a very well-recognized name in venture, we could attract different talent at that point. And so it also, I think there's like a direct correlation to brand alignment to also company building and ability to do that successfully. So it's been a, a total mixed bag of good days, bad days, ugly days, happy days, right? And I think you're, as like a founder, your job is to try to normalize all of that for the company and not be a robot about it, but also to recognize like not everyone can handle that level of like stress or uncertainty. And so you need to be the constant right. like voice and visionary to really instill trust in your own team, frankly. I think that's that's what we're all trying to do. I think when you think about yeah. building a company, it's like, how do you get the right team of people together to help you on this and convince them that like this is what they should do? <laughs> it's also it's great that you bring up being like the locus of stability because I don't think that's something we talk about that much with or have talked about that much with past guests, but it makes total sense in like in this whole not industry because it's the, it's just the type of company like with young with startup companies that's absolutely there's very little else that is that point of stability right like it's not yeah. like you're working for a huge legacy 200 year old bank or something it's like hey maybe this doesn't exist tomorrow and whatever right like but like <laughs> no one wants to think about that day to day i do i think we should always be on the edge of our seats all the time <laughs> but not most people um so yeah yeah that that's a great point and it must be really hard when you're contending with you have to be the one to kind of absorb all that and then kind of like on the other side exude like but well, we got this we got this yeah. right <laughs> 
Yeah. And not to like a degree that's insincere, right? Because then right. it no. becomes like, becomes like this person's so positive and like, so out of touch with reality, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. But you do have to filter it. And I think yeah. I go on a run most morning, primarily for like my mental health, right? As well as like physical exertion, which I really enjoy. But I spend a lot of time thinking about that stuff on the run. Like, what are we going to tell the company this week? Like what's happening? How are we going to communicate this effectively to the team to show the reality of whatever it is, like an executive leaving or, right? Like these are things that you have to communicate and it sucks to do it over Zoom, yeah. but that's the reality that most of us work in now. And so careful packaging and really putting yourself in their shoes as to how this is going to land on them is is crucial. Yeah, for sure. It's funny because me and Jordan just had to do some of this this morning, not to the degree of like, we weren't breaking super bad news, but we were both walking our dogs and like, all right, we're going to figure out how to say this thing while walking uh-huh. our dogs, but in a way that is not evil separately <laughs> yeah, yeah. separately yeah 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 <laughs> yeah but, good walk and think yeah walk yeah, and think Exa- totally. it's exactly what you're talking about with the run and think right it's like, yeah. yeah 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 you need to carve out that time like well i just think i sit on the board of an, another company and we were in a board meeting and the ceo flashed their calendar and like one of the board members just laid into the ceo kind of jokingly but like pretty serious and was like how are you supposed to do work if your calendar is back to back every single day yeah and i it's so true. If we are back to back, then we're not actually thinking like we're just doing. And it actually goes back to like what a PCP told us, like, oh, the worst thing about using Sitka is I have to stop and think. Well, like, OK, maybe we should all be stopping and thinking more that's often. Right. Like, that's right. <laughs> totally. Because you just become like a thoroughfare of information, basically. That's right. right. Like you take yeah. some stuff in during meetings, you spit it back out during meetings. Yeah. And there's nothing actually by way of problem solving or right. solutions or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. So, yeah, well, I think that's a good place to end just because I feel like it also it does thematically resonate with kind of like how you're like carers and also patients back a lot of their time. Right. With what Sika is doing. So maybe they'll use that to think things through and not just attack people in their next meeting. Yeah. (laughs) Although who doesn't love a good business fight? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Kelsey. It's been great talking to you and yeah we wish you all the best with Sitka. Thank you so much Gerald and Jordan such a pleasure to hang out with you guys for a few minutes today. All right that was our conversation with Kelsey and Jordan what did you think about Sitka and Kelsey? The town in Alaska. I really think that I mean we've been getting so into health tech I feel like we've had so many awesome founders on the show. And I feel like I've learned so much about where health tech is going. So I think very inspiring as someone who is like kind of part of a very broken system here in the U.S. You're very much part of it, unfortunately. I'm part of it. I'm locked into it. And to hear that like even just a little bit of movement is great. I think that it was interesting. There were a couple questions I had for Kelsey about like the incentives for PCPs, the incentives for specialists to kind of like use a platform like this. And I thought she answered them pretty well. And mm-hmm. I think Sitka's a really cool startup. I like the idea of like, there's so many times, what did she say? It was like between 70 and 85% of the time, like you don't even have to go to the referral. The specialist can either say like, well, if they came to me, I would start them on this medication or I would yeah. ask them to do this. So just tell them to do that. And then if it gets worse, we'll come back or whatever, you know, but Really cool. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, definitely. It, it was 85% when she said like, you know, how many times people don't have to be referred. 
it turns out, right, where they would have been referred in the old style way of doing things. I think your question about incentives was spot on. And it brought up something that we didn't talk about much in detail here in this chat, but that I've talked about with other startups and founders is like the change from, I don't remember the specific terms, but like there's a type of care measure now that insurers typically use, which is like based on the number of visits you have. So that's how they compensate practitioners, right? Mm-hmm. And that that's far and away the standard and has been for a long time. But lately, there's been a movement towards values-based care, what some people call outcomes-based care, which is like, instead of how, it doesn't matter how many visits it is, it's what happens to the patient. Does the patient have a po- positive outcome or do they get actual value out of the experience, right? So when insurers shift to that, the argument goes that it much better aligns insurers' incentives with patient incentives. And then when you have caregivers operating on that system, it makes all the sense in the world for them to avoid sending you out to somebody else for an additional appointment and then having them go to that person, bounce off them and then like, oh, you don't need this. Go back to your primary care. Like that works. That's incentivized in the old system. It's not incentivized in the new one. And while I think it's still technically a minority of the systems work on a values-based care basis, it's it's growing. So more and more insurers and payers come into this kind of world every day. So I think that, yeah, that's a key detail because otherwise it could it can't exist, right? Without that kind of move towards that kind of care system, you're absolutely right, Jordan. Like it doesn't make any sense. But luckily there's some sanity and people are moving towards this kind of thing where it's like, oh, what if the person where that's whose healthcare is what there? What if we were paid based on their health? Actually got healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Like that could be the incentive. That would be awesome. Yeah. There was also like the idea of upskilling and stuff that I still feel a little shaky on just in general. Like mm. I do think that the hive mind, you know, two heads are better than one kind of idea and the outcomes for the patients could probably be better. But I would hate to think that you as a general practitioner, as a PCP, might feel confident in making a diagnosis without that specialist on something that you were confused on based on having like three similar cases. You know, like someone has some sort of ear, nose and throat issue and the specialist says, okay, put them on this. And then two more have it. And they say, put them on this. And the fourth comes in and you're like, well, maybe I don't need to consult with, right? maybe I'll just put them. And it's like, I feel like that's where things, and I didn't feel like Kelsey was really clear on like how to stop a PCP from doing that or like making assumptions because they're not getting the full context of that specialist's education or like the one outlier that they might not have mentioned because it didn't apply to the first three cases. Yeah. So that I think too, we didn't address in as much detail as probably would have, it would have merited because I feel like there are, this is true in nursing and I think it's also true in doctoring or whatever you would call it is like there are, (laughs) there's formal, there are formal accreditations that you can get that are sort of like mini specialties, right? And like, Mm -hmm. and you can actually, so a technical upskill would be like doing enough time on that subject to get like essentially a gold star or whatever the hell. Yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. you need to like take action in that field, right? Yes. Like yeah. a general practitioner doesn't just watch a bunch of surgeries and then go in and do surgery. They right, still have right. to like get some sort of accreditation to pick up that scalpel, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that might be part of it. And, you know, that's something that people will have to investigate for themselves because we unfortunately didn't cover it. But whether 
Sitka goes into that level of detail with the people they're talking to and works with them on sort of like secondary specialties or whatever. Because that's also true for a lot of PCPs, right? Is they will have a secondary specialty. Yeah. Well, you could see that also being like a phase two or a phase three type thing where like if they have a big enough library of content and they can get in with some university or academic institution to be like, hey, how does this compare to the curriculum and what else would someone need? And can we partner with you to get them whatever they might need Yeah, to kind of like quickly while they're working during their practice, get this secondary specialty or whatever? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah for sure. Well, the other thing to me that was super interesting about this chat was the async video aspect of it. It's just like, because we've seen it obviously take off in social media to a huge degree. And then we've seen enterprise kind of try to mimic that or emulate that slack has i think a few features now where it's like yeah record a video for your team that they can all consume later or whatever right in the platform and it definitely had a moment in the enterprise where people were like yeah like instead of a meeting or instead of a message like record an async video and drop it for somebody but this is the first i've really seen it used much in healthcare because typically it seems like the emphasis is on synchronous video because you want to be able to like have it back and forth and ask questions and get answers like live but it seems like this really works for this particular purpose. But what did you think about that aspect of it, Jordan? Yeah, I think that it's probably for the best in this situation. I would say that in most it's not because I'm not when, when it's supposed to be conversational, right? Like when yeah. it's supposed to be conversational, there are a bunch of other modes that we can communicate in that make a lot more sense for async. But I think this is one of those like secret X factor situations where because of the end patient and because of the fact that there could be questions or follow-ups involved in kind of like this diagnostic situation, that it combines the empathy of seeing someone's face and kind of like the back and forth necessary in people's lives who are very, very busy. So I think if there were ever a situation where async video makes a lot of sense, it's this one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I'm curious to see what more people do with that in healthcare specifically. I think maybe it could be something that more people use more, especially as people get more accustomed to it in like their daily lives with social and stuff like that. But yeah, really cool. Good chat with Kelsey. Alaska. I did. I did not know that before this podcast. I learned a lot on the proposal. Watch it. I'll watch the proposal as promised. And viewers, you should all watch the proposal also. That's what I'll leave you with. Yeah. And then while you're watching the proposal, rate and do review. some second screen and rate and review us. Yeah. And be like, man, I really love the proposal. I got a rate found very highly because they recommended it. And then when you go to write your review, like, thank you so much for recommending the proposal. Recommending it was a great proposal. show. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Pound is hosted by myself, TechCrunch News Editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Managing Editor Jordan Crook. Yashad Kulkarni is our executive producer. We are produced by Maggie Stamitz and edited by Kel Keller. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com, and you can call us and leave a voicemail at 510-936-1618. Also, we'd love if you could spare a few minutes to fill out our listener survey at bit.ly slash found listener survey. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.